You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For those that were with us last week, you'll know that um, we've been in the book of Revelation the past few weeks, starting our study out. Um, and in coming to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, the passage talks about Jesus coming again on the clouds and every eye seeing him. And so we've paused in our journey through Revelation to discuss a little bit about what it means for Jesus to come back and when that takes place and um, just some of the implications when we read a passage like that in Revelation. Um, And I've challenged you and told you that it's really important that we have to make some decisions about what we believe about that coming of Jesus to better understand and interpret the book of Revelation. And so um, last week we stepped back a little bit and we've been talking about um, whether there's a rapture or not and whether scripture presents a rapture, a rapture being the idea that Jesus comes back for the church many years prior to him bringing an end to this world and an end to this age. And so we started that discussion last week and I wanted to um, share with you last week some of the reasons that I believe that there is not a rapture, that Jesus is coming back one more time, what we commonly refer to as the second coming of Jesus, and that when Jesus comes, he will put an end to all things and usher us into eternity. Um, So we said last week from a summary sentence standpoint, we're going to use the same summary sentence this week, that we have a strong need to understand as much as we can about the return of Jesus so that we can faithfully receive the encouragement meant for us as believers and so we can accurately warn unbelievers of their coming judgment. Just about all the passages in Scripture, in the New Testament especially, that are discussing the return of Jesus, it's tied to the fact that we're supposed to find encouragement from it as believers, or the flip side, that unbelievers are supposed to be warned about it and should uh, heed to the coming return of Jesus. And so for us to gain the encouragement that we're supposed to gain from it, as well as pass on appropriate warning of that coming judgment, then we have a strong need to understand as much as we can about the return of Jesus. So that's why this study is relevant to us as a church today. For our kids last week, we said that knowing more about Jesus's return helps us stay encouraged. So the more we can come to an understanding of this, the more this becomes common language for us versus being introduced to it for the very first time then the more encouragement we can receive from Scripture and the more appropriate warnings we can give to others that are not believers. Um, We said that this rapture decision, is there a rapture, is there not a rapture, is an important decision, even though we might could argue that Scripture's not fully clear on it, it's an important issue that we have to work through because it shapes our understanding of Revelation. I told you last week, if there is a rapture, the rapture position believes that the bulk of Revelation is not for the church, that the church is not here on this earth, the church has been taken away, and that a bulk of what happens in Revelation is for a group of people that we are not included in. Um, And so for us to read and understand Revelation, we have to determine, is this being written for us or potentially for us or for a different set of people? It also helps develop our sense of urgency. We talked last week, if there's a rapture, then there's a second chance for people to get saved when Jesus comes back for the church. That the tribulation incurs. We said, we kind of fast forwarded and looked into Revelation, that there are um, an uncountable amount of people that come to, to, come to salvation during that tribulation time. And so 
uh, there's an opportunity for people to get saved. And so we talked about the fact that if we believe in a rapture, that we all ought to have some type of document in our house that warns our family and friends when they come looking for us, here's the answers to your questions. Um, that there's a different type of sense of urgency if there's a second chance for salvation after Jesus returns. But then number three, it also guides our approach to discipleship. We said in First and Second Thessalonians, Paul planting churches, raising up new believers, is having uh, early conversations about things like the Antichrist and times of tribulation and the return of Jesus. That this was not a topic of discussion that he reserved for down the road when they were more mature in Christ that within a few months, he's talking about eschatology with new believers. And so if we're gonna embrace our responsibility to disciple other Christians um, as they come to faith in Christ, we need to be able to answer those questions that they're gonna have. We said that a lot of times people that come to Christ, some of the earliest questions they have are focused on eschatology, things that are gonna happen in the future. And we wanna be grounded in our understanding of that so that we can properly pass on um, what scripture says to those new believers. Um, some points of agreement that we've already talked about, but just to kind of highlight again that um, obviously there are good, strong people that believe in a rapture, good, strong people that don't believe in a rapture, but we all agree on some certain things. So whether we're right or wrong about the, the second coming and the rapture, we agree that Jesus is coming back in a visible, physical form. There will be a resurrection of believers to eternal reward and unbelievers to eternal punishment, that Jesus, when he returns, will, de- will defeat death and that all of God's plans will be accomplished as he intended. We're going to look at two different passages of Scripture today um, in relationship to this argument about is there a rapture or is there not. But just to remind you from last week, some of the arguments for, uh, or that is what is the rapture, the belief that Jesus comes back for the church many years before the world ends, um, at least 1,007 according to the view. Arguments for the rapture that we looked at last week, the rapture passages and the second coming passages are different according to people that believe in the rapture, specifically that the rapture passages of 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians um, mention um, believers' bodies being translated or transformed into new bodies and us being caught up together, whereas other passages do not mention those two things. Uh, Number two, the rapture allows for a true imminent return of Jesus, meaning that Jesus could come back at any time, that we don't have to wait on anything to happen. And then number three, the rapture creates the greatest hope if we can escape a coming tribulation. So those were some of the arguments for the rapture. Um, why I don't believe in a rapture and why I'm going to teach Revelation from that viewpoint. Number one, the church does not appear to be a parenthesis in God's plan to save Israel. We said last week that pending your understanding of the relationship to Israel and the church, it leads to whether or not you believe in a rapture or not. So we can kind of step back from the return passages and really hone in on, do we believe that the church has been grafted into, the, into Israel and that they are one people of God, or do they have separate destinies as the rapture view would present? Um, I believe that it's clear in the New Testament that, they have been, that the church has been grafted into Israel and we are now one people of God. Number two, the New Testament speaks more about enduring tribulation than avoiding tribulation. And number three, the, repur- the return passages seem to indicate events happening simultaneously rather than at various times. And we're going to look more at that today when we get into the passages in First and Second Thessalonians. So let's go there immediately. First Thessalonians chapter 4. This is one of the main passages that um, proponents of the rapture view would say is talking about a rapture of the church. Again, meaning the idea that Jesus comes back um, to take the church prior to a great time of tribulation and judgment 
and prior to an a, a, uh, earthly reign of Jesus here for a thousand years. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll break down this passage as well as a passage in 2 Thessalonians to kind of help close out our discussion. Again, for those that weren't here last week, we did not finish last week, and so we're kind of picking up where we left off last week. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we will start reading in verse 13. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then we move into chapter five. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, You have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. In looking at this passage, again, a very common passage uh, in relationship to the rapture view. The rapture view says that 1 Thessalonians 4 is the rapture of the church, and that 1 Thessalonians 5 is about the time after the rapture. Okay, so for us as a church, if we're reading this from a rapture perspective, and again, going back to Revelation 1-7, Jesus is coming back. The whole earth will see him in visible form. When are we talking about that? The rapture view would say that Jesus comes back here in 1 Thessalonians 4, And then 1 Thessalonians 5 is about a time after the rapture when Jesus brings judgment upon the earth and will eventually vanquish his enemies. My view, or or the view that that is commonly attached to the amillennial view, but again, it's so hard to talk when you say people that believe in a rapture believe this because there's going to be deviations from some of these things. Not everybody's going to fall into a nice cookie cutter uh, type setup. And so I'm going to simply tell you this is what I believe Um, in my studies from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, it is consistent with the amillennial view that the 1 Thessalonians 4 chapter is how Jesus' return relates to the dead Christians. And then 1 Thessalonians 5 is how it relates to those who are alive when Jesus returns. Okay, so the rapture view, 1 Thessalonians 4, it's for the church. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 5 is about a time where the church is not here. 1 Thessalonians 4, from my view and my studies and the amillennial view, is that 1 Thessalonians 4 is specifically addressing what happens to Christians that die before Jesus comes back. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, how do those who are alive when Jesus returns interact with culture? 
All right, so let's take a closer look at this passage. I think it's obvious from the very beginning in verse 13 that Paul is writing to address an issue. There's an issue that needs to be addressed, and Paul wants to tackle it head on for this church at Thessalonica. Again, he's responsible for planning this church. He's been discipling this church, raising up leaders within this church, and there's some confusion about the end times here. The issues that are addressed here, he says, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Then he goes on in verse 15 to say, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. All right, some of the issues that are being addressed in this chapter, first of all, there's a lack of information. There's a lack of information. There's a disconnect between what Paul thinks he has taught and what the Thessalonians have been able to remember. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning that Paul believes there may be some misinformation or lack of information that this church needs. Secondly, there is a lack of hope. The people are losing relatives, close friends that are believers, and Paul says, we don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. So he says, we want our information to drive you to a hopeful outlook on the future, all right? And then there's a lack of clarity that Paul then clears up for the church by saying, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This isn't speculation. This isn't what we think is going to happen. Paul says, this is from the Lord. This is what we can tie our hope to. This idea of resurrection, this idea of life continuing after the grave. In 1 Corinthians 15, you'll remember um, a chapter that's devoted to an understanding of the resurrection that Jesus has initiated the resurrection for us. In verse 17, it says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So Paul is talking here and he's saying, let's talk about dead Christians. If Jesus has not come back from the dead, then they've perished. If if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Christ has initiated this hope of resurrection. Paul says, we have hope in the future. As we see friends and relatives die that are believers, we have a hope that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and that when he returns, there will be another resurrection of those believers. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 15 um, gives us a foundation for 1 Thessalonians 4 and how to understand it. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I think we shared this last week, or maybe it was just in our C groups. We talked about the fact that... um, 
Let's see if I can get our notes back up there. Uh, we talked about the fact that Jesus, in his resurrection, his resurrection is different than any of the other resurrections that we see in the Bible, right? You've got, um, you've got people like Lazarus. You've got others in the Old Testament that are raised to life after dying. You've got some of the believers that are raised when Jesus dies on the cross. The belief is that all those resurrections led to those people dying once again, that they were raised temporarily, but that they once again would visit the grave, that they would die again, that Jesus is the only one yet to attain a type of resurrection that leads to full glorification where there is no more death. Now, again, Jesus subjects himself to death by taking on the form of a servant, by becoming man. And so within his deity, he he takes on the form of of humanity and, and subjects himself to death. But he serves as an example for what we're to expect, that we will come from the grave in the future if we die before Jesus comes, and we will live forever in a glorified body. All right, so Paul's saying, hey, I get the fact that you're, you're confused about what happens to Christians that die, and it's leading to a lack of hope because you're wondering, have they perished or, or, or do they have a future? And so he gives some clarity to the situation. That's the purpose of this passage, all right? Um, now, why is there a lack of information? Why is there a lack of hope? Why is there a lack of clarity? And what's really being addressed here? Here's what the rapture view would say. The rapture view would say that these people, these Thessalonians, understand resurrection based on Old Testament teachings. Therefore, they are not misinformed about dying saints' destiny. Okay, so the rapture view would say, these people aren't confused about whether these people come back to life one day or not. They're ingrained in Old Testament theology. The Old Testament talked about resurrection, that the Jewish people had a hope in resurrection. So they're not confused about that. Instead, they are afraid that dying saints will miss Jesus's return or the rapture and they'll miss the millennial reign and will have to wait until the very end for their resurrection. Remember, we've talked about the fact that the rapture view believes that um, there's a resurrection at the very end that will include mostly Old Testament Jewish people, Jewish people saved in the tribulation. So the rapture view says, Paul's addressing a concern here that people that have died during the church age are going to miss all the fun of the rapture and the millennial reign. All right? My view, in my understanding and teaching on this passage, is that previously they hadn't lost any Christian friends or relatives, and now they have. And they really are asking what happens to them. See, the rapture view says, no, 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 they have a clear understanding of the Old Testament teaching on resurrection. But I have a concern with that belief because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, when Paul talks about these very people that are now misinformed about the future, listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. He's talking about the testimony of the Thessalonians' salvation. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I think we're misinformed if we think these people are ingrained in Old Testament theology. These people are worshiping idols, right? Like they're not, they're not, they're not like Cornelius, a God-fearer who needs to be told about Jesus, right? The book of Acts says Cornelius feared God, was kind of ingrained in the Old Testament understanding, but wasn't aware that Jesus, the Messiah, had come. And so the Holy Spirit comes to, um, 
to Peter, and Jesus communicates to Peter, you've got to go tell Cornelius about me because he's misinformed. He's still thinking Old Testament, and he's not aware that the New Testament's here. These people aren't God-fearers who are just confused based on their understandings of the Old Testament, right? They're, they're idol worshipers. And so think about this. If you come in and you're, you're, you're witnessing and people are getting saved and they've been worshiping idols, which means that before you got there, the people that they were close to that died, died in their sins, right? So your first order of business is not gonna say, hey, people that die get raised to life when Jesus comes back. No, because probably most of the people that you know aren't going to get raised because they died in their idolatry. So Paul doesn't cover that right off the bat, right? Now that he's raised them up and they're maturing and there's been some years now that maybe have, have uh, progressed since their salvation, some of them have died. And they're saying, hey, we don't really understand about the resurrection. What happens to these people that, that got saved when you first came, Paul, and now they're not here anymore? You've told us to look forward to the return of Jesus do these people get to look forward to that too? So I think he really is addressing a, a lack of theology here about the resurrection. Now, if these people, again, were God-fearers and, and Jewish people that, that were ingrained in Old Testament theology, then maybe we could excuse it like the rapture view says and say, oh no, he's trying to correct their view about the millennial reign. These people are idolaters. They don't, they don't know Old Testament theology. They don't know about the, the Old Testament teachings on resurrection. Okay, so I think God's or, or Paul's wanting to address this fact and wanting to correct it for these people. So going back to 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, I want to give you clear information about the end times. I want to clarify for you your concerns. I want to give you hope for those that you've lost. He says, I'm going to declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He basically says, you're afraid that dead Christians are at a disadvantage. He says, I'm here to tell you, they actually have an advantage over you. They're going to get their glorified bodies before you. They're going to get to meet Jesus in the air before you because their souls are coming with him and their bodies will be resurrected first and they will unite with him prior to those that are alive at the time. Now, it's going to be so quick, nobody's going to be complaining about who got to go first. But the implication is, is that you're afraid there's a disadvantage. You're afraid they're going to miss out on something. And Paul says, they're not missing out on anything. Like they're coming with him and their bodies are going to be reunited with him. It says, don't worry about them. They have an advantage over us. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We talked last week a little bit about the meeting in the air. That's a big sticking point for the rapture view, that Christians meet Jesus in the air so that ultimately they can go to heaven and be with Jesus in heaven. Because Jesus tells his disciples, right? I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm gonna come again so that you can be with me in that place. So that kind of leaves the burden of proof on, on this view that I'm holding to now. Why meet Jesus in the air if, if you're not going to heaven and leaving this earth? Why would you meet Jesus in the air if you're coming right back to the earth? That's what I shared with you last week is that the amillennial view says we catch up in the air with Jesus and then we come straight back to earth with Jesus. I told you the Greek word has that meaning. It's the same meaning that if 
we had a friend show up for church today, you would go meet them in the parking lot so that you could come into the church service with them and introduce them to everybody, that you come in to initiate that welcoming process. Okay, so I believe that, that we meet Jesus in the air for that purpose, that Jesus gathers his people, separates them from the unbelievers so that we can usher him into this earth. And then if you fast forward into um, the book of Revelation chapter 21, you have this picture of Jesus coming with heaven to earth. And so it doesn't discount the fact that Jesus has gone to prepare a place. The idea is that Jesus is bringing that place to this earth and that, that almost a picture of heaven and earth becoming one and that being the dwelling place for God and his people for all eternity. So that's where this view kind of reconciles the meeting in the air passage, all right? Again, we can disagree about whether this is a rapture or the second coming of Jesus because there's some really important things that are clear for us. For our kids that are taking notes, you can fill in your blanks with this. This is what I want our kids to leave with because I know all this discussion about rapture, non-rapture may get lost on them, but here's what our kids and our adults can take away from this chapter. Number one, there will be Christians on the earth when Jesus returns, and that ought to be a great hope of encouragement to us that the church never goes away The church never goes away. There will always be Christians. There will never be a king or a president or a leader that develops policy that would ever squash the gospel and its advancement. Christians will endure until the end. There will always be a presence of God's kingdom here on this earth. There will be Christians on the earth when Jesus returns says this passage says they'll be caught up into the heavens with Jesus. Number two, Christians will die and will be resurrected when Jesus returns. Christians will die and will be resurrected when Jesus returns. That's really important. We should not get angry at God when a believer dies. And so often there's questioning and there's hurt and there's frustration when a perceived strong believer is taken before we think they should be. Whether they're young and they had life ahead of them, we question God and say, how can God be good and take someone like this? Whether they're in the prime of their ministry and they're having success, planting churches, missionary, uh, being a missionary on the, on the field and, and sharing the gospel, why would God take this person? We should expect that Christians will die. And that doesn't violate God's plan. That's not a deviation from God's plan, that it's part of his plan. And that when Jesus comes back, they'll be resurrected. They remain a part of his plan. Number three, Jesus will come with dead Christians. We get to be reunited with our our family and our friends that are are, um, uh, faith followers. We get to be reunited with those that we've lost. And that ought to offer hope and encouragement to us as we wait. And number four, dead Christians and alive Christians will be resurrected when Jesus comes back. And we will be with Jesus forever. Those are the clear teachings of this passage. There was misinformation, there was a lack of hope, there was a lack of clarity, and Paul writes to clarify. And the application from the passage here, he tells the church to find hope and to share this hope, to encourage each other with this information, Paul says. He says, I've given you information here, verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. So in this passage, this main passage about the rapture, there's an issue being addressed. Number two, there is resolution for two groups with a climax of glory. The two groups in this chapter, 
dead Christians and Christians that are alive when Jesus comes back. Two groups that are being dealt with in this chapter. Dead Christians and Christians that are alive when Jesus returns. And the resolution for both of these groups is they get ushered into glory with Jesus. They get new bodies. Their sanctification comes to completion and they are now glorified, meaning that their bodies are free from sin and free from death. And we're to encourage each other with these words. So that climax there, dying saints will enjoy the same great privileges as living saints when Jesus returns. Okay, so that's kind of the thrust of what Paul's saying there. Paul's saying, hey, I want you to be clear and and informed, and I want you to understand what happens to dead Christians and that they're not at a disadvantage. And I want to tell you in such a way that you can be encouraged and you can encourage others. Then the natural question probably that you would ask after hearing that is, I mean, let's just picture, let's just picture if, I, if I finished teaching right there and you didn't know anything else, and I said, anybody got any questions? Probably the first question would be, hey, when's this going to happen, right? Like, this sounds awesome. Like, I just lost somebody that I love dearly. When do I get to be reunited with them? When is Jesus coming back? Enter chapter 5. Now, again, the rapture view says this is a completely different time frame here. This is, this is after the church has been raptured. But to me, the natural reading of this is, now let me further explain to you. I just gave you the, the meat. Now let me kind of fill in some details here. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. All right, chapter 5 here. The timing is unclear. But it's certain Jesus is coming back, and it's evidenced by warning signs. And there's some warning signs that are given to us here that people will be kind of oblivious to it, that they'll be saying peace and security, and then all of a sudden it's going to come. There's, there's these warning signs for us to look for. And so the implication is that we should be prepared and we should persevere. All right? The rapture view on this chapter would say Christians are not part of the night, so we are not here for this time. So rapture view would say, hey, this is great, this is good, this is good stuff, but technically we're not even here for when this happens, okay? My view, or the amillennial view, would say 1 Thessalonians 5 seems to parallel 2 Peter 3, 3 through 15, a passage that we do seem to be present in. So if you flip to 1 Thessalonians, or 1 Second Peter. Second Peter three. Verse three. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Talking about the time of the flood, right? 
that it'll be just like the times of the flood where people were like, Jesus or, or God's judgment's not coming, and yet they failed to realize that the world was set up to be uh, dumped on with water. Verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Pause right there. We've talked before about this, the belief that uh, prior to the flood, there was possibly a water canopy surrounding the earth, and that um, if you were thinking about how to judge the earth, it would have made sense for water to come crashing down in the form of a flood. Fast forward now, if you watch any type of um, Animal Planet or um, Discovery Channel, some of these shows, they have shows about what would, what would it take to end the world. About 99% of the theories they come up with are all related to fire, right? Uh, different forms of fire and, and um, uh, different uh, elementary elements elemental type things that would cause the destruction of the earth. So real consistent with what God's saying here, that the earth is set up to be destroyed by fire when judgment comes. Verse 8, but we do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up, dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? See, this passage seems to indicate that, Paul, that Peter is saying, look, Jesus is going to come back and bring judgment. And he hasn't come back yet because he's letting people have the opportunity to repent. Because when he does come back, the time of repentance will have ended, right? Like that's the reason that he hasn't come back yet. It's to give opportunity for repentance. So if Jesus can come back and there's still chance for repentance afterwards, why not go ahead and come back now, right? Like I'm delaying my return to give people the maximum amount of time to repent. That's the implication of this chapter, Peter goes on to say, those of you that are here that have already repented, what type of lives should you live in light of this as you hasten for this day to come? If there's a rapture, we're not hastening for this day to come. We're hastening for a different day to come prior to this day, prior to this day, okay? So the, the amillennial view would say 1 Thessalonians 5 parallels a passage like this. Um, Matthew 24 is another passage that presents something similar, Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would, have, would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Here, Jesus isn't saying you're not gonna even be in the house when the thief comes, right? Because that's what the rapture view would say is that, hey, you don't have to worry about the thief coming. You're not part of the night. You're part of the day. You're not even here. Jesus says, hey, you know what? If you stayed awake through the night when the thief showed up, he couldn't do anything that caught you off guard. You would be awake and alert and ready for his coming. That seems to be the same idea going on in 1 Thessalonians 5. Not that we're not here for it, but that we should stay sober, that we should stay awake, that we shouldn't give ourselves to the activities of the night that would lower our, our inhibition to know what's going on, right? In Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. 
Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Again, Jesus says, I'm coming back. Be ready. I'm coming like a thief. Be ready, believers, for when I come. Okay? Um, So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. Again, I believe this chapter is talking about those of us that don't die, those of us that will be here when Jesus comes back. There's strong implications for what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to prepare. Paul says, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you don't need to have anything written to you. He's coming like a thief. Paul says, even if I wanted to tell you how or or when he's coming back, I don't know. And you don't have to know. You don't need to know. We don't need a date, Paul says. Treat each day like it's the last day. He says the timing is unimportant. It's unexpected, but it is certain. And he says, make sure the cries of peace around us uh, not lull us to sleep. He says, get in the light and stay in the light. That's the idea here. Make sure that you're on the right side when Jesus comes back. John chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it, that, uh, heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. The idea here is that I'm delaying my return so that you can repent and get into the light so that when I come as a thief, you're not caught off guard. See, this is a relevant discussion because if I believe in a rapture, then I believe you're still gonna have chance to repent after Jesus comes back. And that totally shifts my urgency. It totally shifts what I'm communicating. And see, I was always taught, yeah, there'll be a second opportunity, but it's gonna be really hard to get saved and not many people will get saved during the tribulation. But remember, fast forward to Revelation, it says there's a group of people that have never been counted, that can't be counted from all tribes, nations, and tongues that are worshiping. And he says, these are the people coming out of the time of tribulation. If you believe we're not here for the tribulation, You've got to believe that a lot of people get saved during it. So again, hey, Jesus hasn't come back yet because he wants everybody to repent. But newsflash, when he does come back, it'll be wide open for you to repent. See, that's different than what I think what's being communicated is that when Jesus comes back, the time of repentance is over, that it's over, that we're gonna endure the tribulation and it better be a time where you get things right and you get into the light that there's not peace and security that there is coming judgment, all right? Um, that's the First Thessalonians 4 and 5 passage, the, the main passage about the rapture, all right? But let's jump over to Second Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll wrap up with this chapter today. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians 
chapter 1, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and in you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great passage. This is a passage that offers all kinds of encouragement. Rapture view says, it's not for you. The Rapture view says, don't fall in love with this passage as a Christian because you won't be here when this happens. The Rapture view says that this is about the end of the tribulation and that chapter two is about the time of the tribulation. So the implication here is that these people that need to be relieved of their affliction during the time of tribulation are people that you're not numbered with. That these are people that get saved in the tribulation time. This is the second coming of Jesus, not the rapture. Now, I checked myself on this because I'm reading this again this morning, and I'm like, this can't, they, can't, they can't believe that this isn't for us. And so I, I, checked. I checked. I checked John MacArthur's sermon on this chapter. I mean, this is the second coming. This isn't the rapture. You know, and so he teaches his church, this is about the second coming of Jesus, not the rapture of the church. Now, wh- why, why is that difficult to, to hear? Because he's writing to the Thessalonians and he's trying to give the, the hope to the Thessalonians and it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't resonate with them if this isn't really for them. The amillennial view, the view that I'm holding to is that this is about Jesus' coming judgment. It's a judgment for us to be worthy of the kingdom. It's a judgment for the unbeliever to eternal destruction and that 2 Thessalonians 2 is about why Jesus comes to judge. Okay, um, there's an issue that needs to be addressed, just like there was in 1 Thessalonians 4. And I think 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, they are mirrors of the same event, the same event. And I wanna show you the commonality between these two passages, okay? There's an issue here. The issue is that there is a perceived injustice occurring because it's God's people who are suffering and the unrighteous are prospering. And a church that's early in its birth stage that, that isn't fully aware of a doctrine of suffering could easily look around and say, something's not right here. We're supposed to be worshiping King Jesus who's supposed to be in control of everything and we're getting beat up and killed for following him. And the people that are beating us up and killing us and rejecting the gospel, they're prospering. How is this right? Paul says, let me address this issue for you. When Jesus comes back, tables are turned. Things are flipped. The ones who will be prospering are the ones who make it through the suffering. The ones who will be then suffering and afflicted are the ones who have been doing all the affliction up to this point. He says the tables are going to get flipped. He says the encouragement Thessalonians, because the ones that are being afflicted at the time that this is written are the Thessalonians. 
And he says, hey, good news, Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, the tables are flipped. The tables are flipped, and you're going to prosper, and those that have been giving the affliction will then be the afflicted. Okay? For kids, what becomes clear from this passage? Justice is coming against those who are unbelievers. Relief is coming for those who are believers. Justice is coming against those who are unbelievers. Relief is coming for those who are believers. Paul's basically saying, hang on, hang on, hang on. Don't walk away from the faith. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Jesus is coming back, and when Jesus comes back, he makes all things right. That's the hope of this chapter. Just like in chapter uh, 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians, there's a resolution for two groups with the climax being glory, right? We said in the 1 Thessalonians 4 chapter, you got two groups, dead Christians and alive Christians. They both end up with Jesus in glory. In this chapter, there's two groups. There's believers and unbelievers. And the resolution for both is God's glory. Look what it says. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. God's going to be glorified when he comes to bring judgment. His might, his glorious might will be shown against unbelievers. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, saints will be glorified when Jesus comes back, right? They get the new bodies that are glorified, free from sin, free from death, that enjoy him forever. God's glory is the focal point of the passage here. He's glorified in judgment. He's glorified in the glorification of his saints. To this end, we always pray that our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The issue looks like things are unfair right now. Paul says, don't worry. It's going to all even out in the end. In fact, it's going to far more than even itself out in the end when Jesus comes and makes all things right for eternity. Resolution, God gets glorified in judgment and in his salvation of those that follow him. What does this mean from um, God judges believers worthy? So the two climax, the two resolutions, God judges believers worthy, God judges the wicked for their unbelief. All right, so in this chapter... Here's what the rapture view is saying. The rapture view is saying that this relief goes to tribulation saints. And then again, I've told you some believe that Old Testament saints don't even get resurrected until this point. Not at the rapture, but later. Okay, so relief comes to the tribulation saints and maybe Old Testament saints, and that the tribulation rebels get punished now. And then the rest of unbelievers don't get punished for a thousand years later. That's what we're saying here. If this is about the second coming of Jesus and there was a rapture and there's going to be a thousand years after this chapter, that basically Jesus comes back and he judges unbelievers that are alive at that time but doesn't do anything to unbelievers that are dead because they don't get resurrected to their judgment until a thousand years later. So to read this chapter from the rapture view, you're basically reading it and saying, okay, when Jesus comes back, People that were against Jesus during the tribulation, they're the ones that are going to get punished when Jesus comes back. And then a thousand years later, the people that were hurting the Thessalonians, which is the next point, the Thessalonian persecutors of 2 Thessalonians 1 are not dealt with until the return of Jesus. Not dealt with at the return of Jesus, but a thousand years after he comes back. 
And in actuality, the Thessalonian Christians don't even gain relief at this point. They gain it seven years prior to this point. See, when you start trying to read all this stuff into it, it's like, what's the hope and encouragement of this passage again? Because I'm confused. See, you're supposed to read this. The natural reading is, hey, when Jesus comes back, he's going to judge unbelievers and he's going to rescue believers. But if there's a rapture, this isn't talking about that time, and that's when I get my relief, right? That's when I get my new body. And if there's a resurrection after a 1,000 years, then he's only judging the people that are alive at the time, not the ones that are actually hurting the Thessalonians and not the ones that are hurting us today. It's only the ones that are alive when he comes back. The amillennial view, real simple, glorification goes to all saints at the same time and all rebels get punished at the same time. That's how I think the natural reading of this chapter leads you to believe. All right, so again, what we gave with our kids, what I want you to really take away from this chapter is that justice is coming and relief is coming. Justice is coming to the unbeliever. Relief is coming to the believer. Now, you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. It's following the same format as 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So he kind of anticipates that question again. Hey, when's this gonna happen? And Paul says, hey, it hasn't happened yet and you're not gonna really know when it's gonna happen. Just like he says in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says in verse three, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, this is, this is a dangerous time, um, and it's important for us to kind of know if we're here for this or if we're not here for it. The rapture view says that we're not here for this. Um, it's written about a time when the church won't be around. So going back again, the timing is unclear, certain, and it's evidenced by warning signs. Rapture view says we're not here for this. My view says the strong warnings and the clarifications seem to be for the church that will be here during this time, all right? It's hard to understand exactly what's going on because I don't think Paul says everything that he could say here because if you read in verse five, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Basically, Paul's reviewing his sermon from like the week before. I reviewed my sermon from the week before it took a fraction of the time that it took me to teach it last week, right? So Paul's saying, hey, here's a recap of something I've already taught you, and we don't have the original teaching of this. So there's a lot of gaps that we unfortunately don't get about what he's talking about here with the Antichrist and the tribulation time. We just don't get it. 
because Paul didn't write it down in such a way that, that it's included in the canon, okay? Um, so that makes it difficult to really know what's going on here. I think what's clear from this chapter, there's current and coming deception that's very real, and we need to be on guard against it. Paul felt it necessary to, to their faith that they understand these things. What's great about this chapter, and it's, one of, it's really one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, the reason for that is that while we can't stop this evil from coming, we shouldn't really want to because it's part of God's plan, right? Like God's completely sovereign over 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 here, right? Like the greatest evil, and let me, get, let me jump ahead to this um, slide. Basically, all evil intents will be devastated in the end. Be encouraged as evil presses in on you. This is what Paul says. Paul writes and says, the greatest plan of evil our world has ever seen can't even be executed until God says it's okay. It says that God's restraining it and God will say when Satan and the Antichrist and all this stuff can happen. Like the greatest satanic plan of all time to deceive the world, God says, only when I tell you, you can do it. The greatest leader of evil our world has ever known will be killed by a single breath. I mean, think about it. Satan's been waiting for years and thousands of years and, and decades and, and, and forever to bring this leader on the scene that's supposed to deceive all these people. And when he finally gets his chance, it says, Jesus is gonna come back and kill this dude with his breath, right? Like the greatest evil plan of all time can't even happen until God says it's okay. Then the greatest leader of all time is killed by a single breath. Number three, the greatest deception of evil our world has ever developed will accomplish absolutely nothing but God's glory. Look what it says. Who are the people that are actually deceived by this? Like you don't have a description here that, oh, and at the very end, God lost 5,000 souls that were deceived by the Antichrist, right? Like the Antichrist showed up and wow, we underestimated his ability and we lost 5,000 people, but everybody else made it. Everybody else made it to heaven. No, it says that the, um, uh, let me see here. Um, is it verse 10? Uh, the, all the wicked deception for those who are perishing. The only people that get deceived by this are people that are already perishing in their sins. No believers get deceived by this. No believers lose their salvation over this right? The greatest evil plan of all time with the greatest leader of all time for Satan's purposes gets nothing done in the end. The people that were dying in their sins die in their sins. The people that were saved and sealed to the day of redemption stay sealed to the day of redemption. Number four, the greatest effort of evil our world, world has ever witnessed will be completely frustrated. Number five, the greatest trap of all time by the devil turns out to be the greatest trap of all time by God, as he comes in all of his glory to frustrate all of this evil. I believe we're here for this. I believe it's important that if we are here for this, that we prepare for it. Because if this deception is coming, it does not afford us the opportunity to say, oh, well, if believers can't be deceived by it, then I don't have to do anything. Because the warnings in Scripture are always meant to make sure that we don't get deceived by this type of stuff. In Philippians chapter 1, 6, we have a great hope that God starts a good work in us, God finishes the work in us, right? We don't have to worry about our salvation being lost. Jude 24 and 25. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God preserves us to the end. We don't have to worry. But, but, Matthew chapter 24, verse 4. <coughs> Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. The implication is that we have a responsibility to make sure that we're not led astray. I'll close with this verse, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The author of Hebrews says, You need to join yourself to a local church. You need to be a part of a believing body. You need to gather now. He says, if you want to be gathered in the heavens when Jesus comes back, you need to be gathering right now to make sure that you're on the right side when that day comes. You stay away from the deception. You stay away from the the, the persecution and the suffering that's coming, that if you were to be scattered, you would wilter. He says, you stay close together during this time. Gather now so that you're gathered then. That's, that's, that's the hope that's attached um, to what's coming in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. All right, the application for us. <clears throat> Have you decided what you believe about the return of Jesus? Hey, at the end of the day, I don't care if you hold to a rapture view or not. I don't care because I, I can be wrong about stuff, right? Like I, I respect John MacArthur greatly, and I have a ton of his commentaries, and I lean on him for a lot of doctrine and theology. I just disagree with him about this one. And I may be wrong about it. But for you to be uh, as encouraged and as hopeful about the future as you can be, you need to know what you believe about this, right? I started studying this in 2010, and I'm far more hopeful and encouraged about the future than I've ever been in my life. And I can have conversation after conversation with you about what I believe about this stuff because I've, I've immersed myself in the word to know what the word teaches about it and I've wrestled with it, and I've reconciled some things that are hard to understand, and I'm okay with having conversations about this because I have such a hope in the future because what I think Scripture reveals. And I want you to have the same thing and not just because I've told you what to believe, right? A lot of us have been told what to believe about this for a long time. I want you to immerse yourself in the Word and know what you believe because you've studied it, not just because you've been told by me or somebody else. Number two, can you explain your beliefs about his return to others? For you to be encouraged and for you to be an encouragement, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. It means you knowing what you believe. All right, our family worship questions for this week. What are some of the false teachings going around today that Christians must be on guard against? Whether you believe we'll be here for the tribulation and the great deception or not, 2 Thessalonians 2 says it's already started working itself out right? Antichrists have already come, John tells us. So false teaching is going to be around whether there's a rapture or not. What are we going to do to guard ourselves against it? And specifically as families, what are we going to do to help our kids be guarded against it? And then what passages of scripture will help us think truthfully about these false teachings? You know, I was trying to think through this, like um, if I was at your house, like how I see these conversations going is kind of talking about some of the false teachings and the false ideas that are very prevalent in our culture um, and, and, and attacking and, and addressing the mindset behind some of those things.
right? Like abortion's a big topic right now with the, with the sanctity of life focus going on, and there was the big rally in D.C. The big argument for those that are proponents and supporters of abortion is that what? This is the woman's body, right? That the body belongs to her, and she has the right to make those decisions. That's, 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 the, that's the belief. That's the teaching, right? But Scripture, Scripture says something different. <coughs> Not just about when life starts, but specifically about who owns the body, right? Like there's discussions about the, the, the body of a husband and the body of the wife belonging to each other, not to them personally. There's also the passage in, in uh, Romans chapter 12 that talks about our bodies being offered as living sacrifices, meaning, hey, I don't own this, you own it. Use it for your glory, for your purposes. It's not mine to control, right? There's, there's things that can be talked about and discussed that helps combat that false teaching, that false understanding. Um, so I'd love for y'all to talk within your family structures about some of the false teachings that are going on. Have your kids share some of the things that they've heard that maybe can lend to that discussion. And then talk about some of the scripture passages that help correct some of that false teaching. Again, if we're here, we've got to equip our kids to be able to handle the false deception. It's only gonna get worse. It's only gonna get worse, and we have a chance to prepare them for that now. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you and thank you for your passages of scripture that we've been able to see this morning. God, I thank you for the truth that's contained in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 2 Thessalonians 1. God, whether it's talking about two different times or the same time, I'm really encouraged by what you say there. I'm thankful that people that I'm close to that have died are coming back with you. And that I'm going to see them again. And that they're included in your plan and that they're not at a disadvantage. I'm thankful that I get to join them in the air with you one day thankful that we get to be with you together forever. God, I'm thankful that when times are tough here and circumstances aren't going the way that we would desire, and as we hear about brothers and sisters in Christ around the world being persecuted and killed for their faith and realizing that that may come to our country very soon, God, we're thankful that this isn't how it's supposed to be, and you're aware of that, and that when you come back, you will make all things right. God, we're thankful that the second coming will have implications far and wide as you make things new. God, we're thankful that in the meantime, as Satan and his forces operate around us, as they bring false teaching and deception and persecution and suffering to your church, God, we're thankful for the promise that it will not be effective. God, we're thankful that you will preserve us and protect us that you've started a good work in us and you will complete that good work in us. Father, we are praising you and thanking you today that when Jesus comes, he puts an end to all things with a breath. We praise you and thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrificial nature to come and to give of himself out of love for us. God, we're thankful that he comes with all authority that he will bring justice and relief in the future. God, I pray that we would cling to that hope. We would find encouragement. God, help us to find the appropriate hope and encouragement as we come to a better understanding of these things. And God, I pray that we would teach these things faithfully to the younger generation below us. God, that they would embrace these teachings and understand the threat to their faith that's coming and that you would use our discipleship, our teachings to cause our kids to hold fast to their faith as things get worse. We praise you and thank you for our salvation. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.